All right, good morning. How is everyone this morning? Excellent. Excellent. Well, as we get started this morning, I'd like to ask you a question, something for you to consider. And that is, would you want someone else to wear your shoes? Now, you might be thinking, Brother Matt, that's just an odd way to begin Sunday school with. I don't want anyone else to wear my shoes. I'll keep my fungus, my grime, and my sweat to myself. I don't need anyone else's. All right, so let me rephrase the question. Would you want someone else to walk in your shoes in the sense of experiencing your life? Or we could even be more explicit and say this, would you want someone else to experience what you know as the Christian life? Now, I realize that when I ask that question, when you ask that question, some things about your life may come to mind. You know, we all have fleshly tendencies and probably trials in our lives that we experience, and we quite frankly don't wish those things on anyone. So perhaps we can narrow down the question even a little bit further, and that would be, if you are here this morning and saved, you're a child of God, you've received God's free gift of salvation, would you want someone else to live with Jesus Christ as you know him? You know, there's a phrase that gets flung around in our Christian circles sometimes when people are talking, they say, Christianity is different than all the other religions in the world because Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, in the sense that a religion is a system of things to do, but Christianity is a relationship with a person. And you know, that phrase is true and that phrase is correct, but sometimes it gets thrown around to the point that it becomes cliche. Do we know what that word means? Can some little person tell me what that word means by any chance? What is some, what is, when we say something is cliche, what do we mean by that? You're all very quiet. But that's okay, I should talk. <laughs> to be cliche means that you use something to the point that it loses all its meaning. It loses its significance. So we say, I have a people say, I have a relationship with Christ, but what they mean when they say that is, usually simply, I have been saved, and that is a good and wonderful thing. That's where it all starts. But you know, the, the day that you were born again, the day that you were saved, that was not an end, that was a beginning. A beginning of a relationship with a person. The Bible uses a lot of space to inform us about living with God after we make the decision of salvation. To help us to clarify the question even further, I wanna read you just a little something out of this. This is a good book. Um, I had to read this for seminary. Now in seminary, sometimes you read books that are like this. 
But to be quite honest, I like books like this. This is more my size. <laughs> so this, this, here goes, this here goes right along with what we're talking about. The author of this book, this is Victory in Christ by Charles Trumbull. He says, at a student missionary convention, which I had the privilege of attending, some of us were congratulating ourselves on being a step above the ordinary church member. We took pride in our willingness to spend time, our time, energy, and money to attend a missionary convention and share in our Lord's program for the evangelization of the world. But our attitude changed as one speaker after another confronted us with a rather uncomfortable question. Is your kind of Christianity worth sending to the non-Christian world? Not, is Christianity worth sending? There is no question as to that. But what about your kind? The kind that you showed by your life this morning, yesterday, last week, last year. Is that what the non-Christian world is waiting for? Is that what is needed to revolutionize lives there? Now there is a kind of Christianity we're sending to the non-Christian world. It is the kind that Jesus Christ lives, the kind that he has always lived. And the Christianity that Christ himself lives is the only kind worth sending. The kind of salvation that Jesus offers is the only salvation worth offering to anyone. So the kind of Christianity that Jesus lives moment by moment is the only kind of Christianity worth living. You know, the Christian life is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Now the Bible does give us do's and not to do's and those are important. Those are very important. That's why God gave them to us. But it is important that we understand that the Christian life is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It is intended to be a life spent with another person to be lived with a divine person. And that is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. The life that God desires Christians to live is not possible apart from him. Christianity does not work without God. So keeping this in mind, let's turn to a passage of Scripture that will help us understand this a little further, I believe. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians was most likely written um, during the same time Paul would have initially visited that city during his second missionary journey from Antioch. And so this would be later on during that journey after he got chased out of town. And he's writing back to them. 
to encourage them, to lift them up, because they are experiencing trouble. And he's wanting to further encourage them in the faith to establish them. And in doing so, he spends the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians reminding them what happened when he was there. So let's begin this morning, and we'll just read all of chapter 1 here. That'll give us the context for what we're talking about. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray before we dive into our lesson. Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given us today. Lord, thank you for the ability to come and gather around your word and learn something of what you have said to us and what you have done for us. And Lord, the very fact that we can do that is because of your grace and your mercy towards us. You did not leave us in our natural condition like we deserve, but Lord, you chose to reveal yourself to us. So Lord, as we consider your revelation this morning, Lord, would you help us communicate it? And would you help us understand? Would you open our hearts and our minds to what you have told us about yourself and about how we can relate to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, verses 6 through 10 of this chapter are very important verses from a missionary perspective because they reveal some because they reveal the fact that the great commission is not just for the missionary and that informs your missionary strategy in verse 6 he says he's talking about the believers he's talking about how they responded to his gospel and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, 
so that we need not to speak anything. In other words, when Paul is talking about these believers, he's encouraging them, and he says this about them. He's saying, I can point back to you as I go from place to place, and I can use you as an example for what other Christians should be doing. And he gives a reason for why he can say that. He says they received the word with much affliction. And then in verse 8, he transitions to another thought. The word in your Bible that's translated for at the beginning of verse 8 is a conjunction that in the Greek language does not introduce a new thought but introduces information that is supposed to support what he just said. In other, in other words, it's answering a question, well, why can I say this? In other words, he's saying, I can say that you are an example because from you sounded out the word of the Lord throughout this region where you live. You know, to be quite honest, from a missionary perspective, that is a very thrilling thing, and that is something that every missionary strives for to get to raise believers up to a point where they themselves are the ones, not just the missionary, taking the gospel throughout a region, reaching their own people with the word of God that they themselves have accepted. And that is a thrilling and an exciting thing. But how do you get someone there? Especially people like this, you know, later on in Thessalonians, he comments about these people. He says for, in, ver, in chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye, have, for ye also have suffered like things of your countrymen, even as they have of the Jews." who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. In other words, these particular believers that Paul's talking about in this letter do not have easy lives. Just like the Jews of of Jerusalem And as Paul himself did at one point, we're making life hard for the Jews and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The Thessalonian believers were experiencing trouble. And yet, in spite of that trouble, for some reason they thought the gospel was worth taking to other people. So how do you get someone there? And if that was you, would you be doing that? I think as I was studying this, verse 3 stood out to me. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, in verse 3 of chapter 1. You know, verse 3 is an interesting verse because it's one of those verses where you'd be reading your Bible and you'd be tempted to just read over it because that's kind of part of Paul's 
introductory statements that introduce pretty much every letter he wrote. But you know, it's actually a very significant verse because it tells us something about the people Paul is talking about. In essence, verse 3, Paul says, in, well, in verse 2 he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. In other words, what Paul is saying is, when I remember you, this is what I think of. In other words, what he is describing here is what characterizes those people. He says, when I think of you, I think of your work of faith. I think of your labor of love. And I think of your patience of hope in Jesus Christ. When I remember you, that is what comes to mind. You know, what, I, what is significant, you know, obviously we had our introductory comments, what is significant about these terms, faith, love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, is these are all relationship terms. They are terms that describe how a man can relate to God. And it is something that every Christian can learn. So we're going to talk about these this morning. We could really actually probably preach a whole sermon on each one of them, but we don't have time for that this morning. So we will look at them briefly and summarize them. So what does Paul say about these people? He says, when I think of you, I think of your work of faith. All right, what is faith? Someone want to venture a guess? Some brave soul. This is a brave soul. Believing God. Believing God. Okay. What does that mean? I mean, the devils believe also in tremble, right? Do they have faith? Well, it, your belief is shown in what you do. Okay. Your work. Work of faith. Okay. Anyone else want to try? Trusting in something you cannot see. Ah. All right. So faith is not just believing something is true. Faith is actually putting your trust in someone. Right? We see an example of this actually in chapter 2. Paul's making a comment. And in verse, let me find it here. Verses 3 and 4, he says, he's describing his behavior while he was among those believers. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Now really, you could preach a whole sermon on those two verses. There, there, there is an absolutely incredible thought there that God 
would take what his son died for. And what does he say? What does Paul say? I was allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. The word that's translated be put in trust is the same word in John 3.16 where it says, whosoever believeth on him shall not perish. So in other words, when the Bible talks about believing in the sense of believing in God, it is talking about an act of trust. It's talking about an act of dependence. All right, we see that here in this verse. Paul is testifying and he's saying, when I came and I was among you, I was not as someone that was just, you know, trying to get you to follow me for my own gain. I was preaching the gospel as one that had been entrusted with something, a message that was not my own. So, we understand then that a man is saved by putting his faith in Christ. Now, what does that look like? When we say a man is saved by putting his faith in Christ, what do we mean by that? We need another brave soul. Some theologian. Do we not have any theologians here? Oh no, this is terrible. Well, what we, what we mean when we say a man is saved by putting his faith in Jesus Christ, are we saying, you know, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and you trust him and you live a good life, does that mean you're saved? Does Jesus do some of the saving and I do some of the saving? No. No, it's that when the Bible talks about faith in God, it's talking about a complete trust. Right? It's 0% me, 100% God. He does all the saving. I simply put my faith in him and trust him to do it. Right? All right. So with that in mind, why does he say work of faith? Isn't that kind of a strange statement? Right. But if faith, in essence, is dependence, trusting someone else to do something for me. Aha. Aha. Romans, the book of Romans is Paul's treatise on faith, and in the, in the, um, in the opening chapter, he gives his thesis statement for the whole book is basically in the, at the end of verse 17 where he says, the just shall live by faith. Notice he doesn't say the just shall live by faith. I mean, shall be saved by faith. He says they shall live by faith. In other words, the Christian, just as he was saved by faith, he is to continue to live by faith. And in Romans chapter 4, just like we talked about, Paul explains that further. He gives the example of Abraham. Abraham put his dependence on God based on what God had said, and therefore he was justified. Not by anything he had done, 
but by God. Like I said, we could, um, we could spend a whole lesson on this aspect of what it means to relate to God, but we won't do that this morning, but we will try to summarize it. And to summarize it, we have a couple of illustrations. So we do have some brave souls with us this morning. They have agreed to help me if they could come up now. These are, these are really brave men. You know, it's funny. You ask people if, you can, if they would be willing to help you in Sunday school, and they get squeamish. But these men have risen to the challenge, and they are willing to take the risk. You know, the Bible does not describe God only as my salvation, and I'm not making, I'm not making light of that. That is a wonderful thing. If it was not for Jesus Christ and what he had done, we would all be doomed. But the wonderful thing about the Christian life is Jesus is not just only my salvation, and he's left me here to figure it out on my own. You know, a phrase in the Bible that we see that we come across sometimes is, God is my strength. He is my strength. In other words, he is my enabler. And you know, Paul understood this. Again, we see an example here in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For our gospel, speaking of when he came and he preached to them, came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. In other words, what Paul is saying was, when I stood up before you to preach the gospel, maybe in the synagogue, maybe in the marketplace, and I spoke the gospel to you, it wasn't just me that was speaking. Someone else was there working with me and he was the power behind my message. In another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 10, First Corinthians is before First Thessalonians. You have to go to Bible college to learn these things. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now we have an illustration here to help us understand this. So if you gentlemen will come up here, please. Now, William here is going to represent the Christian for us, all right? And you know, quite frankly, there are many commands in the Bible that God gives us that are hard. Can we agree on, about that? What are some of them? You can talk. Faith. What was that? Faith. Faith, okay, that's one of them. Trust God always. Did you know that God said it's never okay not to trust him? Is it ever okay to doubt God? No. Even when you're going through a hard time? Even when life seems it's about to crush you? 
You're right, it's never okay to doubt God. The Bible does not tell us that that is okay. What's something else? Oh, no, love your enemies. Love, oh, I shouldn't say that. Love someone that hates you? What's something else? Right? Always doing what's best for the other person instead of yourself. That does not come naturally to anybody. All right, what else? Bless those that curse you. All right. How about this? Rejoice in the Lord always, even when life seems like it's going to crush you. Well, how about this? Open your mouth and, tell, and share the gospel with your neighbor. That doesn't come easy. Especially if you're like me and you don't say 2,000 words in a day to begin with. All right. So there's a lot of things that God tells us to do that seem hard, if not impossible. All right, and we might say in this illustration that the Christian life is like this weight. Now, William, if I told you to lift that up over your head, do you think you could do it? You want to try? You don't have to if you don't want to. No, he's not even going to try because he doesn't. He, he knows by for a fact that he cannot do it. But let us say, now this illustration is not perfect. But we have a big guy here. His name's Carl. Now, if God tells, now William's a Christian here, and he's telling him to do these things. Lift the weight over your head. But you know what? I try and I discover that in my own strength I can't do that. I find that in myself I'm a failure, that I don't have that strength. But you know, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is, as we said, God has not left us alone. The Bible says that God himself has come to live inside. So let me ask you this. Go ahead and squat down. Put your hands here. Now, Carl, you bend over and grab it. Now pick it up. Okay, you can put it down. I won't make you stand there. I will be nice. Let me ask you something. William, in and of himself, cannot lift his weight. But if he has this guy, it's possible. So let me ask you this. If Jesus Christ is the strength of the Christian life, how much hope do I have of living it?
That's a question worth chewing on. God did not give us a bunch of unreasonable commands and then ask us to struggle through life to keep them. He gave us the provision to actually do what he said, and that provision is in himself. And that is accessed through faith, depending on him to live his strength through me. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, there's another aspect of this. You know, the Bible says God is not only our strength, but he is also our shield. All right? Let's come over here. Now, we'll briefly illustrate this here. Now, I all know that you think Carl is a nice guy. All right? But for a minute, you'll just have to forgive the, forget that and pretend he is Beelzebub. All right, the prince of the demons himself. All right, can we do that? All right, and William here is our Christian, again. And you know, we all know this by experience, but in the Christian life, we figure out that Satan knows how to get us down. He knows our weak spots. He knows what temptations we fall for. And you know what? The Bible tells us something about this guy. You know what, he's big, he's mean, and he's bad, and he's a whole lot stronger than you. The beginning chapters of the book of Job illustrate that rather graphically. All right, in other words, if it came down between a knockout, dragged, uh, a fight between these two guys, it's pretty obvious who would win. I mean, all Carl would have to do is step on him and it would be over, right? But you know, God loves us. And uh, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God does not suffer us to be tempted above that what you are able. And that with the temptation, he makes a way of escape. In other words, God is our shield and he does that in at least two ways. Number one, he acts as a divine filter. Nothing Satan can throw at you, nothing Satan throws at you does not come to you without first coming through God. And Job illustrates that for us as well. But you know what that, what that passage also says that God is faithful and that he provides a way to escape. You know, which means something. God is on your side in this thing. He actually wants you to escape. But now let me ask you this. A shield is something that stands between a soldier and his enemy. It protects him. So if everything the Bible says about Jesus Christ is true, the sufficiency of his grace, the omnipotence of his power, if all of that is true, if Jesus Christ is the one standing between me and my enemy, how much hope do I have? This is a very safe place to be. You can go ahead, you can go ahead and go back down. Go ahead and put that up. 
Thank you. As the Bible says in Second Peter, God, Second Peter, God has given us many great and exceeding precious promises that are for ours for the taking by faith. So these people, their lives, their work, they were, character, were, were characterized by faith in God, dependence on God to do for them what they could not do, to give them the strength to live the life that he wanted them to live and to give them protection from their enemies. What does he also say? He says, when I remember you, I remember also your labor of love. You know, a scribe once asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describes for us what that love is like. And one point we'll highlight here is in 1 Corinthians, it notes that love does not seek its own. You know, that, is, that phrase is extremely applicable both to our relationship with God and man. You know, Paul, again, Paul himself gives us an illustration here. We read it in verse 3. He says, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. And then he goes on. This is chapter 2. Verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. In other words, what Paul, the nutshell of what Paul is saying is when we came to town and preached the gospel to you, we were not seeking something from you for ourselves. Our mission was to please God who entrusted us with the gospel and it was to impart life to you. We were willing to suffer the things that we suffered because we wanted you to have life. And you know, when it comes to relating to God, sometimes we get it the other way around. Sometimes we get it in our head, Lord, you know, I have these great ideas for what I would like to do with life. Now, Lord, I'm going to do this, and you bless it, and make me successful. And when we approach life with that mindset, we are not actually loving God. Love does not seek its own.
that mindset, when we approach life that way, we fail to, we fail to comprehend, we fail to reckon with the fact that Jesus is not just a magic wand that makes my life do what I want it to do. He is my head, he is my king, and I love him because he first loved me. And so as we approach the different issues of life, the correct, answer, the correct question to ask is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you know, sometimes we're scared to ask that, let's just be honest. Well, if I honestly give my life to God in that way, if I say, God, here is my life, you can do whatever you want with it. You can put me through whatever you want to put me through in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish in me and through me. And yet something we have to keep in mind as we just quoted the Bible says we love God because he first loved us. And the fact is there is no better place to place your life in the hands of God. He is fully trustworthy with that. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Finally here, we'll wrap up with this. Not only did these Thessalon- had these Thessalonian believers learn to relate to God by faith, not only had they learned to relate to him through loving him and loving other people, Their lives were characterized by patience of hope in Jesus Christ. And as we had seen earlier, they they were not having an easy time of it. I mean, even if you go back and you read the account in Acts 17 where Paul was there, and he he preaches in the synagogue three weeks, and some of the Jews believe and some of them don't, and then the Jews that don't believe stir up the riffraff and they go to, he was staying in a man's house named Jason and they go to Jason's house and Paul is not there. So what do they do? They grab Jason and some of his friends and they drag him before the council and they say, basically, these men are associated with a man who is guilty of sedition. He's preaching another king besides Caesar. You know that. that would be a scary place to be. You're a new Christian, and all of a sudden you find yourself standing before the government accused of being associated with political traitors. But in spite of that, he says here, your life is characterized by patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of patience often has the idea of endurance in the Bible. So, for for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us run the race with patience or endurance. I'm just curious, how many of you have ever run a race? 
a marathon or a 5K or something like that. All right, I actually did that once. It about killed me, but I did. <laughs> I let someone in school talk me into doing it. <clears throat> well, anyway. But, you know, one thing about running, running is actually a very simple thing. It's not easy, but it's simple. And there's a lot about running that is simply choosing to endure the discomfort. In Romans chapter 5, Paul notes that... Oh, I'll read it here. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. There's our word. And patience, experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And in James, he says further, Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. There's our word again. And he says, patience, endurance, has a perfecting work in your life. You know, there are certain lessons about living with God that you will not learn without going through the different trials that God puts in your life. You can know certain things are true about God in your head. But there are certain things that are true about God that take on a whole different meaning after you've experienced it. And sometimes difficulty is the only thing that brings that out. You know, I'm sure there's many people in here that can say, you know, I've been through hard things. And to be quite honest, I hope I never have to go through that again. And you know what? I hope nobody else has to go through something like that. But you know what? If I could do it over again, I wouldn't trade it. Because I learned something about God. I learned that he's faithful. I tasted his power. I witnessed him do things in a situation that I was helpless to do anything about. And I know he'll do it for me again next time. We'll just mention this here, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 also describes those believers as waiting for the coming of God. And obviously we understand that's a glorious hope. I should live like I could meet God today because I might. So in conclusion here, let's return to our opening question. What was our opening question? Who remembers what our opening question was? You all forget that quickly? Our opening question was, would you want someone else to wear your shoes? 
And what we meant by that was, would you want someone else to live with Jesus Christ as you know him? You know, there's a reason these believers that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians, you know, they were people just like you and me. They were nothing special. In fact, in some ways, they probably were not as well off as we were, as we are. They were people most likely living in third world conditions. And yet, in spite of their living conditions and in spite of the persecution they were experiencing, they thought Jesus Christ was worth the inconvenience of enduring that persecution and going to other places and opening their mouths and telling other people about this, other per- about this person, Jesus, that they had met. In other words, they wanted people to wear their shoes. They wanted people to come to know and live with the God that they had come to understand that they, can live, that they could live with. Now maybe you're here this morning and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've tasted what it is to live by faith. You know that by experience that God enables you to do the things that he's told you to do that you cannot do. You understand that you have a refuge in Jesus Christ that is perfectly safe from Satan's attacks, from Satan's attack on you and you live there consistently. Maybe you understand that, but maybe you're here this morning and you don't understand that. You know, the Bible is an interesting book because it tells us our problems. It tells us that we're sinners. It tells us that in and of ourselves we're strengthless. But the Bible does it in there. You know, the Bible would be a very depressing book if that was all it told us. But God also tells us in his word that there is an answer. There's an answer for the sin you struggle with. There's an answer for your hopeless situation. There's an answer for that friend, that coworker, that neighbor of yours who does not know God, who is lost, and who is on his way to the lake of fire for all eternity. There is an answer, and it is not a religious system. It is a divine person. And it is when we learn to relate to him as a person that we begin to experience him in his fullness. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God. 
and that you love us. And Lord, again, the fact is, if you had simply left us in our sins to go our own way, to live in the lusts of our flesh, and to die and spend eternity in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, Lord, we cannot complain. Because that's exactly what we deserve. That is the way we chose. But Lord, the wonderful fact is is that you didn't do that. You came, you lived as a man, you experienced the things that we experienced. And you died for us and you rose again and you won the victory over things that we are powerless to win the victory over. And because of that, we can know that we have the hope of eternal life. And Lord, even in this life, we can learn and know what it is to dwell with God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you that you have revealed it to us. And Lord, we do ask this morning that you would teach us where we do not understand this that you would teach us where we don't live in you. And Lord, I do pray that if there are those among us that don't understand what it is to live in you, Lord, would you teach us what that means? And Lord, thank you that you want to teach us what that means. And we thank you for these things, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.